Hey, what's up, Jordan? How's it going? We're going to waste no time and jump into some of our content here. Now, usually we start the podcast episodes off with a lighthearted, fluffy pregame warm-up topic, something a little bit more on the goofy side. Uh, but we're going to start on a more serious note because this is the story dominating the headlines here this week, and that is the story involving Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin being found guilty on all three counts in the trial over the killing of George Floyd. Now, this is a sports podcast. We get it. We know that. But this story and the subject overall of police brutality and the treatment of people of color by law enforcement in this country has crossed over in a number of ways from the player protests in the NFL to various league stances uh, to the presence of social media commentary by professional athletes. The word we keep hearing in the aftermath of this conviction is accountability, right? That is something that uh, many in the community of African-Americans and other people of color have just been yearning for uh, because there have been so many cited and documented instances of these kinds of things happening and there being no found accountability. How have you viewed the overall reaction to this conviction, particularly in the realm of the sports world? Yeah, and, and obviously it was kind of a seminal moment, right, the other day where I think a lot of the country was tuned in, just, just waiting to hear the verdict, right? The the sort of the procedural aspect of all of that uh, broadcasted live across the country. And accountability, I think, is, is a very, very apropos word when it comes to this, right? It, it, it's the justice system, I think, working as it should. Um, but it's hard to say there's like, you know, true, pure justice anytime somebody loses their life, right? Anytime there's a death involved, like what, what, what is, what does justice exactly look like when it's that, especially when it comes from, you know, a power structure that has seen this too often. Accountability, right? That's, that's what people are looking for. That's what people expect the justice system to do. And I think in a lot of people's minds that hadn't played out in past incidences. And so does it represent anything on a, a huge systemic level? I, I don't think so yet, right? I, I think it's, it's part of what I think a lot of people, myself included, hope is a process that we get to that point where things are accountable to everybody, right? Not just in the instance when somebody loses their life, but just preventing the fact that a situation like that could even present itself where somebody is indeed killed. Uh, and then to circle it back to sports, I, I think what it, what it also illuminated was, you know, the, the impact that athletes, that sports, um, that teams who have sort of been dragged into the conversation in a lot of ways by athletes um, had over the last, I don't know, I, I guess it's about 12 months, right? you know, the last year or so, and just how loud of a voice and how impactful and important of a voice athletes have had and sort of forced people to listen, right? Including those that work in management positions, those that work in ownership positions within these professional sports teams, within some of these collegiate sports teams, and just how much they have made this conversation a part of the national consciousness, how they have brought it to the forefront, how they have not let it wane as well uh and just how important that is right and and you'll you'll hear it right you'll you'll listen to to talking heads you'll listen to folks around the water cooler and say hey look i i want my sports to be sports right i want why why are we spending such a large amount of time on this and i think my answer has always been you know you and i we cover sports and the athletes are talking about this and thus if we're going to cover these athletes i think it's inherent and really important that we also talk about them, right? Because they're, they're sort of forcing the narrative on a lot of these issues. And I think for the better, 
Yeah, it's a tradition in sports that goes back decades, really, uh, from, yes. you know, the initial breaking of color barriers in various sports. And, you know, we just celebrated Jackie Robinson Day uh, a week ago in Major League Baseball. Uh, and so it is not anything new. Uh, and in this day and age where, you know, it almost seems like in society, particularly American society, there is nothing more important than being famous or being a celebrity than it behooves anybody who is in that position that has that level of exposure to utilize that platform for the greater cause, for the greater good, or at least the cause that they believe in. And then it's up to everyone else to disseminate whether or not that's something that they want to jump on board with. Now, in this instance, I agree with you. It forced everyone to talk about this. And oftentimes we were focused on the wrong part of it, right? We were talking about, you know, the unpatriotic nature of kneeling during the anthem. It's like, well, that's not what the intention was, what it was about. But eventually the conversation started to calibrate and started to focus on what this subject matter really, really involves. And I think in this particular instance, what's interesting is a lot of people have seen some of these protests, Black Lives Matter, whatever it may be before, during, or after athletic events, they look at it as an attack on the institution of law enforcement and policing. And so they put up this fortified wall of we're not going to support a conviction of this police officer in this instance because it would, in their mind, open up a Pandora's box right moving forward. And, and I, I think that that creates such a myopic view of what's actually going on. It is on video. It is on tape. It lasts a little over nine minutes. And if you look at this video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on the neck of George Floyd uh, and don't objectively come away with the idea that something was wrong there, uh, then I think that you're probably looking at this through the wrong lens. Uh, this does not in any way represent a systemic change. There is still a lot of reform that needs to take place. Uh, there is a lot that we need to pay attention to in terms of preventative programs and, and, and maybe utilizing resources and, and redistributing resources into trying to make the communities themselves safer so that we don't have to rely after the fact when something happens on someone showing up with a badge and a gun. Uh, but I have a tremendous amount of respect for the policing community. We had Kavika Hallams, who was a sergeant in the Honolulu Police Department, as a guest on this podcast. When all of this was first transpiring uh, in light of the George Floyd incident, uh, and to get his thoughts on, hey, look, it comes down to training. It comes down to responsible training. It comes down to individuals within the police forces themselves being respectful of the community in which they live, being, uh, being conscientious of the community that's around them, Hey, look, there's data behind the fact that disproportionately people of color are uh, subject to a greater percentage of fatalities or victimizing at the hands of law enforcement. That's just a fact. I think if we can break some of that down and just be able to look at these events singularly in each instance and come up with a more objective sense of reasoning around them, then we're moving in that direction. Then we are taking into account, all right, was there wrongdoing? Let's address that, regardless of the color of the officer or the, or the person who the officer was trying to restrain, uh, then I think we are then making progress. All right, with that, we welcome you to the show. Curtis Moriyama is gonna be the episode here, episode 66 of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. He is the sports editor of the Honolulu Star Advertiser. They've gone through some changes over there. Uh, we mentioned columnist Ferd Lewis, who recently retired. Uh, Curtis takes over the sports editor position after the departure of Paul Arnett. Uh, but he's been in that business for many, many years. He's also been sort of part-time uh, in another business, and that is that of draft analyst 
for the National Football League. And so we're going to get on the horn with him because next week is the NFL draft. And it's a pretty intriguing one, especially when it comes to the quarterback storylines. Uh, and so we'll get the lowdown from Curtis Mariama on this upcoming NFL draft. Yeah, can't wait uh, to to get that interview up. He, he's got a wealth of knowledge. And we used to have him on the radio show every year. Uh, when we were doing that right about this time. They, I, I love the NFL draft, not as much as Curtis does, uh, but it, it's always fun picking his brain. All right, let's get to our game time, shall we? All right, in game time, topic number one, tourney time for the UH men's volleyball team. They are playing host to the Big West Conference tournament they have a first round by the time of this recording the first round actually going to go down tonight hawaii is poised to play the winner of csun and uc san diego you have long beach state versus uc irvine in a very intriguing first round match on the other side uh this is a bit of a head scratcher though that is a story adjacent to all of this but definitely related uh, uh came in fourth in the recent posting of the Ratings Percentage Index, or RPI, which usually in most cases fares very heavily into the selection of participants in the NCAA tournament. Hawaii is undefeated, they're 15-0. They're number one in the nation, yet they came in the RPI at number four, behind the likes of Lewis and BYU, and a team called Damon, which is 10-0. They're an independent program. I believe they're based in New York and Hawaii is behind them, even though they are a program that clearly has not played the level of competition that Hawaii has. Uh, there's another program I've never heard of, Duville or something, and they're like 0-2, and, and they're in the number five position. So I don't know what crazy algorithm is being applied here to figure out this RPI rating, but should Hawaii be worried that if they don't win this Big West tournament that they are hosting here this week, that they aren't guaranteed an at-large spot in the NCAA tournament a couple of weeks from now to be held in Columbus, Ohio. Maybe. I mean, I mean if you asked me two days ago before this RPI thing came out, I would have said, I mean, come on. They're the only undefeated team in the country. Well, outside of Damon, I guess, uh, who has beaten <laughs> the likes of, of uh, who do we got here? St. John's Fisher, Elmira. Uh, they actually beat Duville uh, to open their season back on February 20th oh. in a sweep uh, so, you know, that maybe boosted their RPI there. The NCAA is weird. It really is, especially in, in men's volleyball and women's volleyball. And Hawaii's gotten iced out before, never as the number one team in the country. And maybe they wouldn't be the number one team in the country if they do indeed lose tomorrow or Saturday. But they'd be 15-1 and one or 16-1. and one. With the competition that is the Big West, and quite honestly, the Big West as a whole, their RPI pretty low, according to this metric. They need a new metric. Whoever's in charge so. of their algorithm, they need to fire that guy, hire a new mathematician to come up with something better than this, or just get rid of the whole thing altogether. But yeah, do you feel they're ahead of 19-3 and three Penn State, 15-5 and five Loyola, like traditional powers. This would be like if Hawaii was 4-0, having beaten HPU and UH Hilo, and they were like ranked number four in college basketball's power ranking or something, right? Like this, or RPI, I should say. Like none of this makes any sense, and thus – because nobody can figure it out. I think Charlie Wade's quote, right, was he, he sometimes consulted the RPR a Ouija board, and it's been about as accurate <laughs> um, as each other. And so, I mean, I'd be kind of scared, honestly, if Hawaii were to lose one of these two matches, whether in the semifinal or the championship match. It would make absolutely no sense that they would somehow miss the NCAA tournament on the run that they have been, not just this season, but over the last three years. But it's the NCAA. It's the RPI. I really don't know. And, and just based off of what we're seeing here, they leave the door open, there's at least a chance. It does turn up the knob on the sense of urgency a little bit, right? I, I think in any other 
year, uh, in any other sport, if you're the number one team and you're undefeated going into a conference tournament, you are especially a conference that is among the elites in that sport, right? And we're, ta we're not talking about Big West in men's basketball, which is a one-bid league. Yeah, I think you would like to have a sense of security based on your performance to this point. And I think that's the thing that is aggravating is it's the NCAA, right? No chance at all or no clue at all is what it stands for. Uh, because we always seem to, from the perspective of Hawaii fans, find ourselves in these positions where it's just nothing that you can actually latch onto that gives you a sense of security. There is no trustworthiness that this process is going to benefit the University of Hawaii in any way. And so I think what it does is it adds to the sense of urgency where Charlie Wade and this group they got to win the thing. You know, they got to just make sure, leave no doubt, because if they do leave it up to selection committees and powers that be and weird algorithms associated with the RPI and this very strange COVID season, uh, then you are setting yourself up for disappointment. Uh, and I would also be a little bit perturbed if I was a team like UC Santa Barbara, which finished second in the Big West Conference to Hawaii. And they probably feel like they've done enough, especially if they make it to the championship match, even if they were to lose to Hawaii, they probably feel like they've done enough to get an at-large bid. But if the best team in your conference isn't even considered in the top three based on the season they have, uh, then UCSB probably has reason to uh, be biting their nails here going into this tournament. And so it adds to the sense of urgency and just once again reminds us uh, don't ever trust the NCAA about anything handling anything at any time ever. All right, now moving over to sports and leagues and organizations that are trustworthy, let's talk about international soccer <laughs> and this super league that is now super not going to happen. Uh, several of European soccer's most influential clubs were positioned to break off from the traditional league system and embark on a super league, but within what, one to two days? Uh, because of the backlash publicly, really globally, the Super League went from on to off in a hurry. Now, Jordan, I do not in any way profess to know much about international soccer, but uh, you, my friend, you are immersed in it. And so I want to kind of give you the floor here, as I tend to do whenever this subject matter comes up. What did you think about this Super League idea? And what did you think about how quickly it was dismantled? Yeah, how crazy is this, right? The, the other thing, it, it became like a main topic in American sports too, right? Because I mean, it was all over Twitter. It was all over the, the national shows. Like, I don't know the last time soccer was talked about this much, like in American sports, just the the day-to-day the -day sort of 24-hour news cycle, maybe during a World Cup or something like that. Um, but th I mean, this was, this was the front page headline around the world, uh, this, this Super League thing, which has been talked about for a while in soccer it, it, around the world. The beauty of it, because it's so old, and this is sort of the, the backbone of the game, is a, a, a team like Barcelona or a team like Manchester United, which are as big a brand, if not bigger brands, than the Dallas Cowboys, if they all of a sudden start sucking, they could be relegated like to a lower division, like Division Two, if you will, in the NCAA, or, or they could miss out on the Champions League. And so I think the better parallel is college sports. Like this – the. A European soccer is very much like collegiate sports, right? You have your power conferences, the English Premier League, the Bundesliga in Germany, uh, La Liga in Spain. There are about four or five leagues, Italy, France, kind of round out the power five, if you will. And then there are lesser leagues, Belgium, pretty competitive, strong mid-major league, if you will. Um, you know, some, some leagues in Eastern Europe put together some pretty good schools, right? They're the Missouri Valley Conference, if you will, um, kind of 
teams that are always in the mix but aren't necessarily going to win the whole tournament. And the tournament is essentially the Champions League. Every country gets an allotted amount of spots into the Champions League, and you can conceivably be the worst team in your conference, but you qualify, you play well of a certain year, you know, you, you qualify well enough in your conference, you get into the Champions League, and all of a sudden you can be like Butler and find yourself playing in the final. And so that's the beauty of the system. And it is a flawed system, don't get me wrong. There is, it is collegiate football in a lot of ways. It has, it has moved into collegiate football where there are the haves and the have-nots. What this would have done is basically have the Power Five conferences, at least a portion of the Power Five conferences, not even like all the Power Five conferences, but like Alabama, Florida, Ohio State, and nine other, nine other teams basically break off and say, we're just going to make our own league. We're not even going to exist within the NCAA structure. And that's kind of what this was. And so Hawaii would have zero shot, right? The little guys would have zero shot in this formation. Best thing about this was if the college teams were to do that, I don't think Alabama fans would really care all that much about the little guy. But what we saw here were fans of like Chelsea, the London club, who was part of the 12 initial to announce uh, some of the other clubs in England, which were the first to really pull out of this thing. Uh, their fans, their supporters were the ones blocking a bus. The Chelsea team bus wasn't even allowed to get into the stadium because there were like several hundred Chelsea supporters blocking the gate uh, in protest of this thing. And it universally just absolutely derided by fans. Uh, and I think that was the coolest part about this is basically the public backlash was so strong that these billionaire owners, billionaire conglomerates, and a fun little caveat here, four of the 12 clubs that announced that they were going to break away owned by Americans or American investment companies. <laughs> so you can see the American influence on this. And it's not just the American. There are a lot of other power grabbers out there, the billionaires that, that make up this, you know, rich boys club, if you will. Uh, but it was basically the fan, like it was the most grassroots thing ever where all these fans just were in such an uproar that the clubs basically said, yeah, maybe, maybe we got to rethink this thing. And in 48 hours, 48 hours, most of the clubs have pulled out. I think that's what made it such an intriguing story in the United States was the fact that this has been rumored for many years to happen in college mm -hmm. football. They've been talking about this super conference for some time, but you're right. I think the parallel is to college football because a lot of people sort of apply this thing like, wow, this was a very American tactic that was being taken. Really, when you think about it, at least by comparison, professional sports in the United States uh, are fairly socialistic, right? There's a lot of revenue sharing among them, whereas compared to what you see in international soccer, it's much more of a meritocracy. It is based on accomplishment, yeah. as you're alluding to. Uh, there's actually not that strong of comparison. It is a greater comparison to hold it up against college sports. We could be heading in that direction in this country. And I think that's why it made it even more of an intriguing story here because we might not be far away from uh, seeing that happen in college football. That's the, the best way to put it because it, it really is supposed to be a meritocracy. And the funny thing is the Super League has been talked about for, for years, kind of like the college football thing. So once it happens, you saw what happened. It, it, it all kind of hit the fan. Well, Steph Curry could hit the fan. He could hit really anything over the course of his previous 11 games. Uh, that's right. Steph Curry in the NBA had an historic run. Finally came to an end, actually, last night. But prior to that, he scored 30 or more points in 11 straight games. He's the first player since Kobe Bryant to do it. Uh, he did it 10 times in a row. Uh, and at 33 years old, Steph is the oldest player to ever do it 11 straight games. He averaged 40 points per over that stretch. Still currently leads the NBA in scoring at a little over 31 points per game. Warriors are in ninth place in the Western Conference, currently in position to participate in that play-in tournament, which will be between seeds 7 and 10. Uh, but 
even though the Warriors as a squad aren't contending at the top of the stack at this stage of the season, do you think Steph Curry should be considered an MVP candidate because of the season that he's had and also because of this incredible run? Yeah, I, th- I think so. They're, they're, what in, they're basically in the play-in game right now in the Western Conference standings. And I think not just how incredible he has been. And it's been so much fun to watch. How has he seemingly like gotten better at age 33 or whatever he is now? It's, it's amazing. And part of it is necessity, right? He doesn't have a lot of help out there. And the only way they're going to win these games is if he goes off like this. Kind of a la James Harden when Chris Paul went down the other year and he went on that incredible stretch. And I thought he, sh- James Harden, just like Steph Curry now, should very much be in the MVP conversation, right? And the other part of that equation is LeBron's missed a lot of time. Joel Embiid's missed time. Um, pick any of the three in Brooklyn, they've missed time, right? Maybe Jokic in Denver has been the most consistent in terms of playing time outside of Steph Curry amongst the MVP candidates. And because those other guys have missed time, uh, it only bolsters the case that Steph Curry should be in the conversation. And the fact that, you know, a guy at his level with it currently where the team is at, like they would, they would be so much further down the standings if it wasn't for Steph Curry. You know, it, it maybe you could say it's kind of like Russell Westbrook when what, what did they finish like middle of the pack the year he had the triple double he ends up winning the MVP. This has almost been more impressive by Steph because of what he's had to do and you know maybe not maybe not chasing the stats as much. It, it's been a joy to watch. Absolutely, without a doubt, should be part of the MVP conversation here. Yeah, I think what is so crazy about it is when you juxtapose it to what Draymond Green, who was remember we had so many guests on our radio show suggest that over the course of that. Uh, run for the Warriors when they won three championships in, in four years that, you know, Draymond Green should be considered maybe the MVP of that team because he's the glue guy between Steph and Clay and for those last two years, Kevin Durant. Uh, but look at what Draymond Green did when Clay Thompson and Steph Curry was out. He couldn't even average double digits in scoring. And here Steph Curry is there without his running mate, Clay Thompson, with teams running double and triple team traps on him when he crosses midcourt and he's averaging 30 a game and what he went through as far as this zone experience over the 11 games I mean it was something to behold right I mean here's a guy who is the primary ball handler and he's dribbling through defenders like traffic cones he's pulling up off balance he's he's hitting and ones with the left hand from three range like he's hitting shots from 40 feet away it is so unbelievable And yeah, I think that's what's aggravating about the most valuable player initiative in the NBA itself is the fact that this MVP thing is so convoluted and so ambiguous, right? Like, why can't we just say he played the best basketball of anybody in the league? He should be the MVP or the MOP, most outstanding player. There have been some people that have suggested maybe they add that as an award where you have the most valuable player where that's based on if you were to take that player off of that team and oftentimes it's assumed that that team has to be a contender or have a winning record. And then you can have another award for the most outstanding player who just like objectively people look at and be like, all right, he balled out the most of anybody uh, in this league. Maybe you include a guy like Bradley Beal in that conversation because he's also averaging 30 mm-hmm. points. I just, the whole MVP issue gets so convoluted at times uh, that it gets annoying because there's no doubt, Steph Curry, if you watch basketball, if you were to just say like, who is balling out the most? It's Steph Curry. All right, so we move on to our Domino's Hawaii main topping. It's our conversation with Curtis Moriyama, sports editor for the Honolulu Star Advertiser and also NFL draft analyst. So we're going to get into all of that with him. Let's play that interview now. 
All right, here with Curtis Moriyama, and Curtis is the sports editor at the Honolulu Star Advertiser. But this time of year, he always puts on another hat, and that is one of NFL draft analysts. Now, this is something that's been going for like decades here, right, Curtis? I mean, this is this is something that you've been involved with. It's almost like a, a labor of love that's that's turned into an actual sort of labor force in its own right. Yeah, kind of a sickness, I think. <laughs> More or less, but maybe it's like a 50-year sickness, Ross had illness or something like that. I've been carrying this with me since like when I was a little high school kid and I wanted to track something and it was 1971. How's that? That's my favorite draft, I think. <laughs> yeah, I can, you can, can name the guys like was uh, Jim Plunkett, Archie Manning, Dan Pastorini, J.D. Hill, Richard Harris. I think John Brockington. <laughs> Running back was in there. Jack Tatum was in there. You know, all these guys. All these guys. Uh, John Riggins, I think, was in that class, too. <laughs> That's unreal. Well, what was it about the draft and, and the process that, that drew you in, in such, a, uh, such a sort of impassioned way? Well, when you're a young kid uh, and you're listening on the radio, this radio is a big thing now because uh, NFL wasn't even live then, <laughs> basically. You kind of, all of a sudden, the night, my my favorite team, the 49ers, became good. And then I kind of wanted to know, and then I heard about these two rookies that were really good, you know, Cedric Hardman, defensive end, and Bruce Taylor, you know, cornerback, and they're, you know, taking the team by storm, and they're rookies. And then I kind of, after that, I wanted to know, how'd they get these guys? And it was from then that I followed the draft from that point on. And even when I went to college and uh, you could barely get any information, you know, you would have to scramble for listen to a radio broadcast or something or go to the library and read the San Francisco Chronicle or whatever, you know. This is in college and in the 70s and, you know, there's, of course, there's no cell phones. But anyway, and there's no live broadcast, right, of the, of the draft because it wasn't big at all at that time. But yeah, it was way back when, and I followed it. I actually documented, I have something in paper that showed my 1972 <laughs> That's awesome. But this thing has evolved into something uh, pretty special. I mean, you've been sort of working alongside several individuals over the course of time. Uh, and in this particular iteration, uh, you're actually going to be a little more hands-on with regard to uh, the uh, Honolulu Star advertiser press on the draft, as well as as some other uh, affiliated projects like the CO2 Rundown with Chad Owens, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, kind of like being recruited now to, to, <laughs> to do these other shows and things like that. And, uh, you know, I, I see it as fun, but kind of exhausting because like every day there's something, every day as a different mock draft from somebody, every day you have a, a report on an NFL scout saying, I don't like this guy, I like that guy, I like this guy better, that guy can't do anything, you know, you just hear so much, so much, too much information, you just got, as they say, paralysis with analysis, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right, and then, you know, Kanoa and Jordan come along and ask you to be on the podcast just to add to the laundry list of to-dos for you here at this time of year, but uh, if you don't mind, if we can sort of delve tangibly into uh, this year's draft because uh, it is one that is unique uh, because it is one that represents perhaps just like say a 1983 type of draft a possible quarterback boom in fact uh, there 
are some mock drafts that are suggesting we could see five quarterbacks drafted in the top 10. I don't even think that happened in 1983. Um, oh. When you look at this draft, do you think there's a possibility we see five QBs go in the top 10? Yes, I do. I do. I see that. And um, I think what's changed really is the salary structure. So everybody's realizing now you probably can, your best chance of winning if you're a quarterback, which is, quote, the most important guy in your team, if the quarterback is on a rookie scale, that means you can sign and make the team around you stronger. But once you get into the Aaron Rodgers you know, realm and stuff like that, where he gets the big contract, then all of a sudden the players, or you can't get free agents around you. The difference in Tampa Bay is that Tom Brady's taking a pay cut, right? He, he gets really less, like the 15th best quarterback or something. Because I guess when you're married to a supermodel, you don't have to have all that cash anyway. But anyway, you're right about that. You refer to the 83 draft. I think that's the Elway, right? Elway, Marino, and those guys, I think six guys went there. Ken O'Brien went to the Jets. Jets, that was very controversial. Blackledge was in there. Jim Kelly. Jim Kelly was another one that was in there. So um, that that was this and it never had four first the first four picks being quarterbacks that's never had happened you know 1971 which is the one i first followed in the 83 no no 1999 i think so 71 and 99 were the only times you had quarterbacks go one two three so you never had them go one two three four but there's you know there's a chance it could happen right jacksonville taking trevor lawrence the New York Jets taking Zach Wilson, the 49ers taking a quarterback, and Atlanta, all of a sudden, they're in a position where teams might want to come to them for a quarterback in a trade, right? So you got all this going on. It's, it's kind of mad. It's kind of crazy. It's going to be fun from the point when the 49ers pick. I think that's the, that's the turning point of this draft the most. Yeah, I, I can't wait, Curtis. This, this is going to be a lot of fun. Um, the order that you mentioned, right, with with Lawrence and then Wilson and then maybe Fields, maybe Mac Jones, who knows? What what order do you have those guys in? Is Trevor Lawrence the clear-cut number one in your mind? Is, is Zach Wilson the clear-cut number two? How, how would you sort of power rank those QBs that seem to be uh, at the top of the board? You got it basically right on there. Trevor Lawrence, he's – from what I've seen, I, I thought – a couple years ago, I, I basically almost said this, that I thought he was a bit tougher since Elway. You know, a big, strong-arm guy, fast, and he was been a prodigy from, from basically out of high school, I guess. And the second guy would be Zach Wilson, and he has these, he has this little, he's very twitchy. Uh, he can make all the throws. He can throw from all kind of different angles and everything like that and he's quick and he's fast and he can mobile he can move in the pocket and he's he has the chip on the shoulder kind of a baker mayfield type of thing so i like that the third one okay that is the whole thing that everybody's kind of you know complete well if you're a 49er fan nobody wants Mac Jones. <laughs> it's like the whole 49er fan they don't want this guy <laughs> so um but i think they all kind of signs point to the 49ers taking Mac Jones at number three. And then if that happens, every team is like, oh, that they let 
Trey Lance and Justin Fields go by. Now I got a chance to get one of those guys. So you might see Denver moving up. You might even see New England moving up to get those guys. So, and then I think Washington and the Chicago Bears are a little bit further down. They're like 18 and 19 in the draft order. So, I don't, um, or 19 and 20. Washington's 19, Chicago's 20. So, I don't know if our team in the top 10 will want to drop that far down. That's, that's my thinking, 19 and 20. But New England is at number 15. So, I can see New England going to 10, where Dallas is, maybe, to get a quarterback if you like one there. And you can see Denver going to either Detroit or Atlanta, as high as that for a quarterback. So, especially if the 49ers take Mac Jones, then you got Trey Lance, you got Justin Fields, and then you probably get your five quarterbacks in the top 10 right there. If, if the Patriots somehow move into the top 10 and find a quarterback, uh, that, that makes things even, even more intriguing. Uh, as we go throughout, who who's your top-rated non-quarterback, if you will? A lot of talk about Kyle Pitts, the sort of hybrid tight end, uh, you know, the, the receivers all over the board. You got Panay Sewell, but who, who's your top-rated uh, non-quarterback, and do you expect them to be the, the first non-QB off the board? Yeah, it would be Kyle Pitts, is the guy you mentioned. He's a tight end from Florida. Cool tight end. Really, he's just a receiver. Yeah. But he, the only difference is he's like 6'6", like 245. So... Um, He's that kind of guy. He's, he's the, I can't see him. If he's like the best, people say he's the best player in this, best prospect in this draft. So how do you see a guy like that dropping past four almost where Atlanta is? Kind of like, Atlanta, geez, you got to take this guy. You might not need him, <laughs> but he's like the best guy. So um, he's a guy I would take. And Jamar Chase is right behind him as a receiver. Uh, Penay Sewell, the offensive tackle from Oregon, is right there behind him, I think. And if you want cornerbacks, you got J.C. Horn of South Carolina, Patrick Sertan of Alabama, and uh, Caleb Farley of Virginia Tech. You got all those guys. And a bunch of – but going on, going back to receivers, there's a bunch of receivers. You know, Jalen Waddle and Devontae Smith and those guys, the Alabama crew, you know, those guys are just – so there's so many receivers. I think the past two years, so many receivers. There's so many good receivers coming out. It's almost like a inundated market of receivers. Almost that's that's why you have to be kind of elite to be drafted that high, or to to be that. Because after after that, you, people are saying I can get a pretty good receiver in the second round because there's like 25 of them that are pretty good who's going to make our team. And could uh, make an impact in the you know in the league. Yeah, it's interesting. You actually mentioned Jamar Chase as the top of those wide receivers, right? There's sort of that upper echelon that has Chase Waddle and Devontae Smith, the Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, what makes you place Jamar Chase in that number one spot, though, on the list of receivers, as opposed to a guy like Devontae Smith, who has the advantage of having played this past season? Jamar Chase opted out. Uh, why would you still put Jamar Chase as, as that number one guy in that position? Because he can beat you deep. He can beat you short. He's got great hands. He's pretty strong. He's six foot. He's about 200 pounds. And I saw him torch number one draft picks last year <laughs> in the Cle against Clemson. He was basically torching that defensive back who ended up being a first-round pick. So 
I seen him do that. He beat the Alabama guys. He's going to be top guy, top draft pick. You know, and he's just terrific hands. And that's that's what separates him, I think. And you yeah, got, I, you got top Kyle Pitts is in that receiver mold, really, not really a tight end, a blocking tight end. Yeah, I think my uh, Lions, at least in one of the mock drafts I saw, uh, was uh, predicted to take Jamar Chase at number seven. So. Uh, I'm all for that. If uh, if that's uh, your take on on his positioning, that's for sure. Uh, Penny Sewell to me, uh, and obviously anytime you choose an offensive lineman, uh, it is not nearly as sexy as when you're in the market for a quarterback that doesn't get the discussions rambling the way uh, that they do other positions. Uh, but Penny Sewell, like if we were to say, all right, predict one player that you think is the most surefire potential Hall of Famer. Uh, obviously, injury pending and all of that. Penay Sewell, to me, out of Oregon, seems to be that guy. Would Would you agree with that assessment? Is that Is that off base in your opinion? No, that is not off base. Actually, I, I, a lot of my opinions are based on a scout I talked to. Um, he, oh, he's a former scout. He's been there in, in the business for decades. He's still scouts. People still go to him, and for some reason, he gives me a lot of time, and I spoken with him for basically five hours, you know, on the phone, long distance. And uh, he told me Penny Sewell reminds him of Tony Boselli, who is in like the Hall of Fame. So if you get a guy like, you know, Tony Boselli, who's going to be your rocket offensive tackle for like 10 plus years, you know, that's, that's saying something. And that's worth the first round pick of top 10 pick for sure. Yeah, we, without a doubt, I'm, I'm a big Panay Sewell fan as well. Uh, Rashawn Slater, sort of the number two offensive lineman, maybe a, l- a little more versatile. You can play him inside, perhaps. We've seen some of that. Um, but listed as a tackle. Is, is he far behind um, in terms of the gap between Sewell at the top and, and the next batch of offensive linemen, if you will? You got Elijah Vera Tucker, another versatile guy to USC. There's, there's a few offensive linemen here projected to go in the first round. Um, but is is there a pretty big gap in your eye between Sewell and, and, and Slater, Vera Tucker, maybe some of these other guys on the board? No, I think those guys are pretty close. Those are, represent maybe the three or four. You know, I think uh, Darisol was the other one, Virginia Tech offensive attack. He's another one. But those three are the ones I like the most. And they kind of separate themselves a little bit. And Slater is, um, you've seen some, in some mock draft that Slater is picked ahead of Sewell simply because of location, right? You've seen, you've seen Slater go to Cincinnati because Midwest, basically, right? So Rashawn Slater was Northwestern, you know, and then he goes to a Midwestern team, you know, Cincinnati or something like that. And that's why you see him ahead kind of thing. Me, I, me, I would love to have Penny Sewell go to the Chargers, but the Chargers are 13. But i love to see him, you know, reunited with Justin Herbert over there. Um, that's what I like to see, but um, but if not the Chargers, I think we'll take uh, Vera Tucker. Elijah Vera Tucker is the guy you mentioned. He was a USC offensive tackle, but he played, can play guard too. Last year he was offensive tackle, and uh, watching him on film, he's a really solid player. And you know, with the versatility of playing guard, he's he would be valuable and fit the Chargers right there. So, but anyway, though, going back to your question, yeah, those guys. The guy you mentioned, uh, Penny Sewell, Rashawn Slater, Elijah Vera Tucker, they seem to be a little bit ahead of the rest of the group as far as offensive linemen. Yeah, and it, it, 
to be the really interesting thing, and, and I think you look kind of universally across the board with, with all of these mock drafts out there in the ether, the top 15 picks are just full of offensive guys, whether it's the quarterbacks, obviously, that helps sort of fill the pool, if you will, with the, with the five guys at the top. But we mentioned the offensive linemen, the receivers. The defensive guys are kind of littered throughout the middle and the back end of the first round, if you will. Uh, we, you mentioned the three corners. There's some edge rushers out there. Michael Parsons, the linebacker out of Penn State as well. Um, are you a little surprised by that? Has that kind of been the trend with, with just so much emphasis on offensive skill talent and, and obviously the offensive linemen? But has that been kind of a trend you've noticed where, you know, the top end of the first round is just, just all these skill guys on the offensive linemen on the offensive side of the football? Yeah, I'm kind of surprised because usually every year there is a defensive end who is among the best. Last year, Chase Young, a couple years ago, Miles Garrett. You know, then of course you had uh, uh, Jadavian Clowney. So all these guys were like a top pick or the first pick, right? So I'm I'm surprised that there's not an elite defensive end this year. Usually every year you have one of those, but this is the year that um, because of that, I think there's nobody chasing that Chase Young type of guy, you know, Miles Garrett type of guy. Nobody's chasing that guy. So that's why you see all these guys bunched up at the top. Now, if you recall last year, the wide receiver group was terrific, right? Supposedly Henry Ruggs, C.D. Lamb was there, and Jerry Judy was there. And everybody at some mock drafts, even last year, put those three guys in the top 10. But where'd they go, right? I think Ruggs might have been like 12. C.D. Lamb might be like 16 or something like that. And the Cowboys, you know, got wait, the Cowboys got C.D. Lamb in their teens. And the Broncos got Jerry Judy also in that area. So actually the receivers started to drop last year. And defensive linemen went up higher. And offensive linemen went up higher. But uh, this year you don't see the defensive tackle. And you don't see the defensive end. So, and that's why you see the bunch of offensive guys kind of cluttered at the top. Yeah, that, that, make, that makes a lot of sense. So who, who's your top rated defensive guy? I think it would be Micah Parsons at this time. But if you, of course, if you want a cornerback, you got J.C. Horn and Patrick Stetan. But Micah Parsons is the guy. I think, um, it, you know, if you're a Lions fan, I had Micah Parsons going to the Lions at one time. So, and, and I think it was might have been a trade back. A trade back with, you know, Detroit trading with Denver, you know, and then the Detroit goes back to number nine. And then the, Detroit takes a, um, Micah Parsons, the linebacker. You know, from that area, Penn State. So, plus you got a new coach, right? You got guys. <laughs> That's like, right, Man like, Campbell. Yeah, he likes to bite kneecaps through and stuff <laughs> like that. So, if you want to do that, then she's not going to draft a receiver, right? He's got to draft a defensive guy. Yeah, it sounds like he wants to draft a literal Wolverine. I think that's who he'd be uh, looking at to fill those uh, ankle biting and knee biting roles. Um, I'd like to kind of switch gears back to the, the QBs just for a second because I, I find it interesting, the conversation around uh, both Trey Lance and Mac Jones. Uh, you have Mac Jones playing for, you know, the most name brand program in all of college football. You have Lance coming out of North Dakota State. Uh, and yet the conversations are similar, right? They're saying like, all right, well, Mac Jones, because Alabama's so great, it's hard to judge what he accomplished in college to a degree because they were so much better than everybody. 
And then Trey Lance, it's saying, you know, he comes from a program that doesn't go up against marquee talent on the other side of the ball. And so in both, through both prisms, uh, the conversation's basically insinuating that it's difficult to judge these guys. How do you apply some of your forensics when it comes to draft analysis uh, to those two quarterbacks? Exactly what you said. Exactly. It's kind of like, man, Mac Jones, what kind of stress was he in all these years, this year for Alabama? You had like probably the best offensive line. You had the best receivers by far. You probably had the best running back, you know, Najee Harris. Your defensive guy, your defense was always elite. You know, your special teams, kick returners, you know, when Waddle was there, he could take it to the house anytime. Um, you had Sarkeesian, who was an NFL-type guy, right? He was the offensive coordinator. You had one of the best coaches in Saban. So you enter every week as superior in coaching, superior in offensive weapons, superior in play calling, superior in defense. Okay, did you carry a team? That's one thing. Can you carry a team? And that, that's the thing. You know, he's, I, I think I saw um, Herb, Kirk Herbstreit did, does a quarterback thing. I saw the one with Mac Jones. He kind of says he's an eagle-less quarterback, right? He just gets the ball to the, to the receivers and lets them do their thing. He just runs the plays and stuff like that. But, you know, he's a great anticipatory thrower and all that stuff. That's that part. You don't know what he can do all of a sudden when your right tackle is defeated by a superior defensive end or their blitz package, you know, defeats your offensive play call. Okay, what happens then, you know? So that, that's the one thing. Now, Trey Lance is another thing. Supposedly, he called all the pass protections and everything, but... Um, He's so raw right now. So um, he would be a kind of like a perfect 49er type pick because they have Jimmy Garoppolo there. But um, I think they both only played 17 games, by the way. Started 17 games. Mac Jones started, started 17 and then Trey Lance, 17. The only difference is, like I said, one guy is throwing to guys who are NFL guys and the other guys are throwing to you and me, maybe. Or a young you and me, maybe. And, uh, you know, stuff like that. And I think um, Mark Schlereth, um, the former Broncos Super Bowl champion guy, offensive lineman, he kind of said it best is that a lot of times when you don't have elite receivers, you don't have an elite surrounding around you, your windows are smaller. You know, everything's smaller for you. Every, you, know, you know, you don't have NFL guys you're throwing to. So, therefore that might make you a little more pinpoint passer because you don't have guys separating. You don't have, you know, a play design and stuff like that. Your mechanics aren't sound or, or whatever, but he mentioned that. And that's, that's why you might see a guy from small school quarterbacks actually can accelerate more in the NFL because of that, because they don't look at Justin Herbert. Okay. I'm, I'm an Oregon guy. I watched every game. I watched every one of his games. Okay. So, um, he did look robotic. I tell you the truth. He did look robotic in that offense, but that offense was basically a run-oriented offense, and he was throwing to guys, you know, who were not NFL guys. And the play scheme at that time was not, you know, to me, was very basic 
uh, vanilla type offensive uh, play schemes in the passing game, and now now you see what he does. You know, so of of course at Oregon a lot of them were dropping his balls. I, you know, one game I think they dropped like five balls that would have been like at least 180 yards of receptions. <laughs> so, but um, you can see that you can see his explanation there that sometimes if you're not playing with good guys you know you can accelerate you can become a really good quarterback because of that and a lot of times if you play with a lot of good guys maybe you're not as good so look at Tua for instance Tua is great at Alabama everybody wanted him he was like going to be the first round pick had he not been hurt but look at him in the NFL right Joe Burrow looks better and Justin Herbert looks better. They're wow factors with those guys. You know, Tua right now, there's no there's no wow factor, right? So so that's that's the Alabama dilemma, really. And that's the Mac Jones dilemma that you talked about. That's really interesting. The Alabama dilemma. I like the way you uh, put that. And the, at the end of the day, um, there is some science applied, certainly some analytics applied to this process, but you never really know how it's going to go. It all depends on circumstances. A lot of times it's good fortune. Uh, it is very difficult to be so sure and, and can't miss regarding a prospect uh, in any year. Uh, and so that leads me to ask you a question. You've been doing this for so long. Give us a time that you look back on and you go, wow, I think that's the most wrong I've gotten it on a particular player. I famously, well, maybe not so famously, but in my own mind, one of my more egregious NFL draft uh, misconceptions was that I thought Ryan Leaf was going to end up being a better prospect than Peyton Manning. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh, my credibility thrown out the window. Name a time that you look back on and you say, oh, man, I got that one really, really wrong. Okay, Philip Rivers. Philip Rivers, I didn't think would be this good for this long. If you saw him, Philip Rivers, how you saw him this year? Hey, that's how he looked in college. <laughs> not mobile, very stiff, got a really weird passing motion. I did not think he'd be great like this. He was he's like borderline Hall of Fame. And of course, Ryan Leaf. Ryan Leaf, I think you were like everybody else, was basically torn because this guy had all the measurables. You know, he had everything better than Manning, you know, bigger, faster, stronger arm, everything. And um, the only thing is when you started to look later on after he's kind of failed and stuff like that in the NFL, he went back into his kind of like who his high school days and who he hung around with, what kind of person he was. And, and that, that might have been the changing point really after the fact. So, but... I think Philip Rivers, <laughs> one of the guys I struck out on, I, I didn't think he'd be this good. So, I don't know. But Brian Lee, don't worry, you had a lot of people like you on that one. So, yeah, Cam, Cam Newton's my guy. Uh, I got that one all wrong. I didn't think he was going to be good at all in the pros. Uh, you know, he wins an MVP and almost wins a Super Bowl single handedly by himself. It wasn't for Vaughn Miller. Um, Curtis, yeah. I, just, I just got one last draft question. This is a very selfish one. Uh, who do you got the Bears picking? You know, I got the Bears. At one point, I had him taking Jeremiah Usukomura, the linebacker from Notre Dame. Man, this guy makes plays all over the place. Mm -hmm. So I had him there. And then I saying that the Raiders, man, they can't let this guy pass at number 17. So I think at Chicago, I ended up with the 
the probably the best defensive tackle in this whole group, which is Christian Barma, the Alabama guy. So that's another one I have. Uh, but I know the Bears want my quarterback. Um, you got your eye on anybody that you like? So I always I always refer to you know my friends who are cow, cow, big big time Cowboy fans. They always tell me who they're gonna pick. Vikings guys, a lot of Vikings fans out there. They tell me who they're gonna pick. You know, so who are the Bears gonna pick? Who do you want the Bears to pick? Of course, you want yeah. a quarterback. I mean, a quarterback would be nice, but I, I I'm with you. I I, I kind of like the the non-sexy pick, like get us an offensive lineman, get us a playmaking linebacker, somebody that, you know, can actually contribute to winning, not some shot in the dark. Um, you know, and it, it's kind of funny because you bring that up. Like I've got a lot of Niners fans in my life as well. And, and like what you said earlier, nobody wants Mac Jones. Nobody, nobody wants, right. It's, it's always kind of funny how some of these things work out. So yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. If the bears draft the good offensive lineman or, or somebody that's just very steady on defense, right? If one of those corners maybe fall to them, that'd be kind of nice as well. The Bears have nice. Andy Dalton. They're good at that position. What are we even yeah. talking about here, guys? That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's at least third place in the <laughs> NFC West. I mean, the NFC North. They're always they're known for the defense. That's just yeah. So you know, go back to the roots. Run the football, play some defense, and stop throwing it to the other team. That's always uh, that's always a good policy, if you ask me. Curtis, I lied. I had one more draft question. I did want to ask you: Are there any Hawaii guys you think the University of Hawaii guys, or or even I guess we could extrapolate to you know Hawaii high school guys who are playing on the mainland or something like that 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 you think have a, a decent chance of of getting picked at some point over the three days? Question: Because I've been looking. <laughs> I Perfect. Haven't seen, I haven't seen one. Yeah. Okay. The University of Hawaii one. The only name that came up was a receiver, but um, I talked to people who covered them and they're thinking no that can't no no <laughs> they shook his head so uh there's that one and then um anyway that that receiver's name came up in the national listings and stuff like that you know that that's why i started to ask about it but then um the people who kind of cover them and see them up every day they just, you know you, you figure the jojo wards couldn't get a sniff basically right or Cedric birds and those guys so, but I, I can't, I can't imagine, I, I don't see any Hawaii guys making a dent as far as this draft goes, you know. I think there's an Oregon kid, but I think he's coming back, right? Uh, Slade Matapia, he's, he's pretty undersized. He's yeah, he's undersized. He does make plays for him in second, you know, in the second level. But, um, he's, yeah, he's only like 6'1". And um, about 230 or something like that. But that's one of the names I come up with. I think he's going back. Because everybody can go back, right? So because of this COVID year. Was that Rico Bussey, uh, the Hawaii receiver that you're referring to? Uh, Yes. Yes. (laughs) It was. It was. Uh, What did you think? Well, you know, he, he didn't put up the numbers that maybe a lot of people were anticipating he would. He does have a certain skill set. Uh, He did participate in the Hula Bowl, and they had him lining up uh, more primarily at the slot position, which is probably better for him based on his size and frame. And I know that he did impress the coaches at that event. But, yeah, I'm not sure if he did enough to elevate his status into a viable draft prospect. Uh, But I do think he's a guy that uh, will likely get a shot in some form. Yeah. You got to figure it's only seven rounds of the NFL draft, though. And, uh, you know, in my time, (laughs) <laughs> there might have been like 17 rounds 
at one point and you then later on it got shortened to like 12 rounds and then it went to eight and then to seven and who knows now it's seven again but guys like jesse sapolo for instance drafted what 10th round 11th round hmm. for the 49ers way back then yeah i mean it is it is unpredictable and, and you never fully know what's going to happen but uh, it is pretty amazing uh, how illustrative your picture can be uh, in anticipation of the draft. And we really do uh, appreciate you breaking a lot of that down for us. Uh, we'd be remiss, though, if we didn't ask you uh, to put on your other hat, uh, which is a little more year-round, and that is uh, in your role as sports editor for the Honolulu Star Advertiser. There have been some, some changes that have taken place, right? Uh, Paul Arnett is no longer there as the previous sports editor. Uh, Ferd Lewis, longtime columnist, uh, he recently announced his retirement. Uh, this is a sports department in general that seems to be trying to diversify. Uh, we mentioned the CO2 rundown. It's more of an online entity uh, hosted by Chad Owens. Uh, there are adjacent uh, podcasts that are also affiliated uh, with the advertiser from a sports standpoint. And, and so I just kind of wanted to ask you a, a state of the, the paper, if you will, uh, kind of a question on, on how you view some of these changes and the effect and impact that they may have. Well, first of all, the, the manpower that we lost, you know, it's just irreplaceable. You miss them all, miss them all. Uh, Ferd Lewis, I, I worked with him for over 40 years. You know, I worked, you know, at the advertiser first for, you know, 30 something years. And then at the Star Advertiser, another 10, 11 after that, he's consummate pro what a bulldog of a reporter he is was and stuff like that and um and that's that's the one that's the the one somebody you work with uh, you know for that long and not to see him around and that's that's a tough one if, anyway but um the state of the paper is like you know not going to sugarcoat you basically tread water right newspapers all around the whole you know united states are that way it's kind of funny though, newspapers uh, internationally are still pretty viable. But uh, in the United States, it's, that, it's always a struggle right, because of the digital and things like that. So that's, that's always a challenge here. Is there a, a plan to, I mean, you don't really replace someone like Ferd Lewis, but as far as that role, right, as someone who uh, confronts status quo, often questions the status quo, uh, challenges the way people think about certain aspects of the local sports community. How do you go about trying to fill that representative void? Well, that's a good question, but I got ideas. I haven't unveiled it to any of our readers yet. I wonder if we should do it for you. <laughs> Breaking news right here. We can do it. No, it's just, no, it's just, it's just I wanted to diversify the column spot like that, and it's kind of like, you might see Steven Tsai write one, right? Mm -hmm. he's, he's, the, he's the big brand because he covers all UH. You might see women on the staff write some. So, and you might see Dave Rudin again write a column. So, and you might see me write one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, along with uh, guys who are in the office and the production staff, Jerry Campany. You know, he used to cover high school stuff, but now he's inside on the desk. Sharif Goldstein. He's a copy editor, you know, and a big Jeopardy um, follower <laughs> by chance. Uh, anyway, he, he's another one, you know, you know, I asked them to be in the rotation with me. So, but I think it brings a little more personality, you know, to the, to the paper. It uh, unveils the personality of the writer and might be more engaging for the reader. 
I kind of wanted to connect with the community, reconnect with them a little bit, you know, and I think this is one of the way to do it. You get more faces. Oh, you want to write a column there, Kanoa? <laughs> <laughs> hey, have your people call my people. Let's, let's, let's make it happen. Curtis, we, we, we appreciate it, man. Uh, always love talking with you at this time of year. You break it down as well as anybody on the NFL draft. And, um, yeah, good luck with everything at the, at the newspaper moving forward as well. Uh, we wish you the best, and I, I know you're going to get it done. All right. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks once again to Curtis Mariyama for jumping on with us. That's always a lot of fun. Each and every year, look forward to our conversations with him. But without further ado, let's get to our post game. And our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii Maui's premier full service refuse company offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll off containers for commercial construction and residential use family owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information and so I'll start with my best uh, and I'm going to be talking about softball pitching. That's right, at the high school level, we got high school sports going again. And uh, of all the sports, we've seen some dominating performances from pitchers at the high school level. Campbell pitcher, Taron Irimata, for instance, pitched a perfect game against Kapolei Charter in an OIA opening 10 nothing win. Uh, you got to feel bad for Marinol having to forfeit a win versus Iolani, thus ending their unbeaten record. But this was after pitcher Ua Nakua Chung was said to have broken the adopted travel protocol when she didn't quarantine for five days after traveling back home from a softball showcase in Vegas. Athletics director Ben Valley actually took full responsibility for the gaffe, saying he forgot about the approval of the five-day waiting period. So uh, that's, that's not too fun, obviously. Uh, but what she did was pitch a one-hit shutout with nine strike counts versus Eel Lunny, uh, a team that traditionally is always pretty darn good in the sport of softball. So, uh, yeah, my best is just pinpointing and uh, elevating uh, some of the uh, pitching performances that we've seen in prep softball here this year. Yeah, how about Iramata? The, the perfect game? That's, that's pretty darn impressive. I think she's only like a sophomore or something like that. All right, what's your best, Jordan? My best. Have you seen that? So we, we were talking to Curtis uh, Moriyama about the draft. Um, I don't know if his setup is as good as this, but you see this, the Rams, they unveiled their Malibu draft house. Uh, it's sponsored by rocket mortgage, of course, who's also, I think, sponsoring the Michigan state basketball program Correct. or whatever it is now. Um, they, they, they rented or bought, I don't know, a Malibu beach house for the draft, 9,000 square feet. It's got an infinity pool. It's, it's right there overlooking the Pacific ocean. Uh, Andrew Whitworth was like hitting golf balls into the water or something from like the lawn area. They had a Ram, like a literal Ram, walking around the house they had Les Snead the the general manager and John McVeigh the, the head coach and and, and it's I, I think it's a it's a one-up of Cliff Kingsbury's house who was which was all over the draft last year which which led to all kinds of memes and jokes uh, but the Rams are one up in that they're just moving their war room to a Malibu beach house and uh, it's either the best idea or the worst idea in the world like you might get a little distracted you know if, if your picks up and you're looking at the surf or something you got to be careful. All right, we move over to our worst. Uh, I'll start with my worst, and that is Ben Askren, uh, MMA fighter, former UFC standout, gets KO'd by Jake Paul, YouTube star, on Triller's pay-per-view event. Now, I don't even know where to start with this thing. Triller is very shady. Even Mike Tyson doesn't want anything to do with them. Uh, there was another fight earlier on the card where a guy said he got low blowed, even though the replay showed that it was nowhere near an actual low blow. Lied on the canvas, had to be 
carried out of the ring. Uh, and so there's just a lot of sort of questionable, head-scratching, shady stuff, uh, including this KO uh, of Ben Askren by Jake Paul. I'm not trying to say Jake Paul can't fight a little bit. Clearly he can. He's a big dude. But Ben Askren, he shows up. He's got love handles. Like, like he's got love handles like I do. And he's stepping into the ring. And it's just this whole thing was a bit of a joke. The show that they put on, which included performances by like Snoop Dogg and Justin Bieber, Pete Davidson of Saturday Night Live, uh, he was among the broadcast team and he was like roasting both Ben Askren and Jake Paul. It was actually pretty funny. The presentation, there might be something too, like just making it this weird cornucopia of all kinds of different forms of entertainment over the course of a pay-per-view evening. Uh, but that fight in general, Ben Askren getting in there, uh, he's got, uh, you know, love handles and creases on the side of his body that he never had when he was fighting mixed martial arts and then gets KO'd by a YouTube star. Uh, I just thought, uh, what are we doing here? Yeah, not a great look for Askren, right? And I know he's a wrestler, one of the best wrestlers, you know, really in U.S. history. And, and that's kind of always been his MO as, a, as an MMA fighter. But he's been on the wrong end of a lot of things, whether it's the Masvidal knee, whether, you know, since getting like traded from, from the one fighting championship, which was sort of a, a weird deal back then as well. And then he gets knocked out by Jake Paul. Like, like maybe keep the left hand up a little bit there. Like, it might even be better if he, he took a dive, right? Like, that might be a better explanation as to what happened uh, for his just reputation. It's like, yeah, you know, I got a little extra cash or something. Uh, maybe not him, because Triller has to pay for Justin Bieber and Snoop Dogg and all these superstar performances somehow. And I don't think that they can – it doesn't strike me as being something that they did so overwhelmingly great on the pay-per-view that they can afford this uh, super illustrious, grandiose show each and every time out. <laughs> uh, but if they were to, I don't know – uh, put the fix in on some fights and some unforeseen KOs in opening rounds or second rounds or whatever it may be early in fights. Um, maybe also trying to tailor this towards a Jake Paul versus Conor McGregor or Floyd Mayweather type of thing. Uh, I could see that being done. Some of the strings being pulled from the top of the organization. I can absolutely see it. And I don't think I'm just being a conspiracy theorist when it comes to that. All right. What's your worst? Yeah, my worst uh, old man, Tom Brady who's still out there doing his thing. I don't know if you saw this, but the NFL is expanding jersey numbers, basically, right? Everything has sort of been stripped, right? Like the fact that quarterbacks can only wear one through 19, receivers can only wear numbers in the 80s or the 10s, which was a, a pretty big recent addition in the last, what, 15 years or so. Uh, but now they're going to allow, like, defensive backs to go from 1 to 49. Running backs, receivers, tight ends can go from 1 to 49. And in the 80s, defensive linemen, uh, they can now expand their numbers a little bit too into the 70s and whatnot. And so Tom Brady said, this is going to be bad for football. Nobody's going to know who to block anymore, right? You, you know, 55 is the mic, 72 off the edge or whatever. You know, you're, you're barking on all those numbers. And so old man Tom Brady is worried that offensive linemen and quarterbacks aren't going to be able to figure out a wider array of numbers or something like that. I'm not even sure. Like, I, I just think this is a little all, get off my lawn, Tom Brady. He's done things so long. He's so cerebral, right? He's used to guys wearing the same number, I think, year after year. Like, he knows the linebackers' numbers of the Saints and all these kinds of things. And it's still, you can still only play 11 guys out there. Yeah, it's not like they can change numbers during the game, right? I mean, they're going to yeah. be the one number for the game. It's, it's kind of like when Metallica sued Napster and said that this was going to be the fall of the music industry as we know it. Uh, and it was for entities like Tower Records and Sam Goody's, uh, but uh, it didn't bring down the music industry. Uh, it brought it to the masses, uh, and it just kind of felt a little stodgy, a little bit old manish, a little bit uh, generationally conflicting. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm with you there, Tom. Uh, ease up, man. You're on a roll, man. You're being so much more likable now. Uh, don't do 
the get off my lawn thing. All right, that's our best and worst brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. And that's it for us. Thanks once again to Curtis Moriyama for joining us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, or at TalkSports808. Jordan, we'll do it again next week, bro. We'll see you.